generation God gives strength in loving arms Scatters the proud of the nations In the thoughts of their hearts God takes the powerful from their thrones And lifts up the lowly God fills the hungry Don't ever underestimate the importance you have because history has shown us that courage can be contagious and hope can take on a life of its own. First Lady Michelle Obama Eight minutes and 46 seconds will forever be remembered as the length of time we watched the life of a 46-year-old black man, George Floyd, insensately and savagely taken from him by a dispassionate and barbarous white police officer named Derek Chauvin. George Floyd's words, I can't breathe, are changing the hearts and minds of people all over the world. We're continuing our series, Born Black, talking with black friends and colleagues about their lives. I'm Deborah Dykes, and I'm happy to have co-hosting with me, Miss Catherine Young, Senior Vice President of the Memphis Mid-South Mississippi Affiliate of Susan G. Komen. Hi, Catherine. Hi, and thank you for inviting me. I am so happy that you're here and are going to continue to work and share with our listening audiences throughout this series. Um, we're honored today to introduce our special guest, Dr. Wilma E. Mosley Clompton. Welcome, Dr. Clompton, and thank you for being here with us. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be joining you, ladies. It's going to be exciting. We are really looking forward to it. Um, for our listening audience, Dr. Clopton is a writer, producer, director, and author. As the creator of the NMHS Unlimited Film Productions, which is the Negro in Mississippi Historical Society, she is dedicated to highlighting the significant untold stories of Mississippi. There is much more that Catherine and I will get to later that will explain all of the details about Dr. Clopton and her accomplishments. But it's my understanding that it was your mother, Dr. Jessie Bryant Mosley, who originally founded the Negro in Mississippi Historical Society in the 1940s. So, Dr. Clopton... Go ahead. I'm sorry? Go ahead. Yes, that's, that is exactly correct. Um, it's interesting that when my mother and father came to Mississippi in the 1940s, they went to Southern Christian Institute, which is in Edwards, Mississippi, and it was a school which educated young people, black and white. It was an open school, and the faculty was open, too. And in that, during that process, my mother discovered that there was little or no information historically about the contribution of people of African descent in Mississippi. So she set out on this path to not only educate people of color, but to educate people in general about the fact that people of color and of African descent in Mississippi have made great contributions to the state, which are unrecognized. And that started her to form the Negro in Mississippi Historical Society in the 40s. And she also wrote the probably the first definitive book about the Negro in Mississippi called The Negro in Mississippi History. And finished the first one in the 1950s, and then she republished it, I think, in another volume in the 60s. So she went on to publish three different books, trying to bring awareness about the importance and the contributions of people of African descent in the state. Dr. Clopton, we are a little 
difference in age. And for me, growing up in the South, in Mississippi, um, on a farm with my grandfather, it was uh, much different than I'm pretty sure it was for you growing up with your mother. So what was it like growing up as Dr. Mosley's daughter? Well, first of all, we are very different in age, <laughs> and, I don't, and I don't mind that at all, because you're one of my favorite people, as you know, one of my favorite daughters. <laughs> but growing up as the daughter of two two phenomenal people, my father, Dr. Charles Mosley, and my mother, Dr. Jessie Mosley, you can imagine the environment. My father talked to me quite a bit about philosophy and the evolution of religion, and he knew it verbatim and tracked it from his very beginning and I remember sitting at his feet listening to him talk about that and my mother was passionate about history so being in that home which was filled filled with books and, and knowledgeable people was quite an atypical environment uh, somebody asked my mother once will, how will you teach your children about racism or something to that nature. And her response was, I will not have to teach my children. The world would teach them that. And therefore, we had an environment where we thought we could do absolutely anything. And, and being the very spoiled young girl that I was, which was my pleasure, because my brothers were 10 and 20 years older than I, so, you know, I had the run of roost around the house. Oh, my God, so little sister. <laughs> it was awesome. So I thought I knew everything. And... It was a very, and growing up in a very contained community down on the campus of Southern, Southern Christian Institute allowed me such a freedom to just be, to explore, to roam all over the campus and play with children of like minds. It was totally different from the world in which I, I grew to know as Mississippi or the, and, and the United States of America. So, yes. It was it was a little bit different. I don't now. I just thought everybody grew up like me until very late in life. That's such a gift. Um, what a, you were obviously nurtured and encouraged to um, to be your best self uh, during this time with really out without trying to face uh, a lot of the obstacles that most children growing up. Uh, in the black culture during the 40s and 50s during that time. Um, tell me what uh, or when was it that you first realized that the world wasn't as kind and receptive as uh, your environment was uh, lending well, itself you know what, to be? What's so funny, my mother used to always look at me and say, how in the world? She somehow, they managed to instill in me um, a blindness hmm. to, uh, that the, I, I, I knew it, but I didn't see it. And because we were so isolated in terms of how they insulated me, even through my, my teenage years, I was very insulated, hmm. uh, that I did not experience the direct impact of what, what I knew was in the world. And, and I knew it. So I don't know when, I guess the first time I really realized what was going on was when I guess I was actually a junior in college. And I was attending Phillips University, which is now closed. It was a religious school started by the Disciples of Christ, the Christian denomination. Mm -hmm. And I was this thing. I mean, but there were only three people of color on the campus of Jamaican, a Panamanian, and myself. And so it was then, away from that wonderful, insulated environment, that I uh, encountered a number of things. First of all, people just kept, I was such an anomaly that they could not believe who I was. Mm -hmm. And so they were intent on making sure that I knew who they thought I should be. <gasps> And I remember oh being slapped by one young lady in the hallway. But it was very oxymoronic because that was a part of jealousy because I was the dorm president. Um, I was a fraternity sweetheart. I was Miss Phillips University. And 
that was another part of the reverse discrimination because as Miss Phillips University, I was entitled to go to the Miss America pageant in Oklahoma. And in order that I would not be selected, they brought in a former Miss Phillips University to take over the slot so that I would not have not be allowed to go on. But that was another whole story. But I was I was such an anomaly because my parents allowed a freedom, as I said, that that I don't think people even have today. You know, at the age of 12, they put me on a train and I went to Denver to an international Christian youth event, it was um, very diverse, and ended up being an international youth officer, which then entitled me to travel to Minnesota by myself to board meetings. And by the time I left home at the age of 16 going to college, my parents had already made sure that I had been to every state in the United States. And my brother even took me to Mexico. So. Oh, my. <laughs> I, I was already well exposed and having been around people of non-color, especially at, at Phillips University, um, I had an opportunity to see different standards, quite frankly, different standards mm-hmm. of, of being and, and and the things that you that I was exposed to in, in the dorms when, when young people came back from their dates. It was a very eye-opening because it, it let me know that I, I was indeed special and that I'm not saying that in a private way, but right. I had been exposed to things that generally people were not exposed to. So, was it different? Heavens yes. Is it still different? Yes, it is. But it's that difference that gave me the strength to be as forthcoming and as open or too open as I am now. Um, So, Catherine, even though I'm, you know me, even though I am different, I also try to use that strength to make a difference. And that's the best way I can say it. Absolutely. I can remember um, you telling me, and I think I draw from a lot of your strength in the work at Coleman that I do because of that. And and, um, and I, like you, in, in many instances, I wanted to sit at your feet and learn um, the ways and the things and the manner and how I should act and behave and, and, and grow up the corporate ladder. And in a lot of places, you taught me that the wide the world is wide open and it's by your own will and determination that you can make it and get to a certain point and and that's why you know I found comfort and I talked about you in my first podcast interview um, Mm -hmm. that how important of a role that you played in my life even now because it has um, opened my eyes to see things in a whole different perspective and I and I talked about how you know I wanted to um, be of a different color um, when I was younger and knowing that you know because my skin was darker that I didn't think that I would rise no matter what type of education that I had to the level of others because of that but meeting you I understood and it reinforced what my mother had always taught me that whatever you do in life you can you can accomplish anything and you can't look at the outside forces you have to look Uh at the inner spirit within you so that that Uh was a a really you know eye-opener for me Catherine how did you and Dr. Clompton meet let's go down this path just a little bit I'm wondering what what little trick did God have up God's sleeve that brought the two of you together? And you're obviously very close. I, oftentimes I said it was um, God in God's divine plan. Um, one of my great uh, friends, Miss Gayle Porter, was um, intertwined with uh, Coleman and, and Race for the Care. And it just so <laughs> happened at the time, Dr. Clopton was uh, board president oh. of the uh, Mississippi affiliate of Susan G. Coleman. And uh, they were looking for um, a part-time person to do finances and uh gail you called me and said Catherine, is this something that you wanted to do because i think i was still downtown and 
toggling between um, wanting to leave downtown and, and, you know, expand my borders and do something different. And uh, Dr. Clapton called me. I sent her my information, my resume, and she called me. And it, we instantly um, became friends. I think she saw mm-hmm. something in me as a young person. At least mm-hmm. I feel that way. That she saw <laughs> something in me as a young person that had many goals and many things that I wanted to accomplish. And she just magnified that in me. And, and she pushed me, um, you know, to to go farther to to do better um because i i am if most people that know me i'm reserved and and i stand back um but she didn't allow me to to be reserved she she made me be outspoken to um to try different things does this does this match your story dr clompton exactly i remember when we went down to florida for what was that some conference for susan g Yes. That we had in Florida. And so I wanted to go to this one place, uh, Eastville, Edenville, which was the first, I think, incorporated, oldest incorporated black town in the United States, and see what was there. But then we did that. But the side story is that I also like different foods. So we went to this Chinese restaurant, and they had, for me, the best wonton soup I'd had in a long time. And so Ken was watching me moan and groan over that soup. And so all she saw was this dumpling or whatever sitting in the middle of this brown broth. And she was wondering why it was so good. I said, Catherine, try it, try it. I said, I do not want you to uh, to be limited by you know what you think. I said, every day I want you to try a different something. I don't care what it is, try something different. And so that's that was my push to her. You don't... Just because it doesn't look familiar doesn't mean that it's not good. You know, you need to try it. But we had a wonderful time. And every time we went somewhere together, or even not, whenever I saw her, it was just this wonderful relationship encouraging her brilliant mind and self Mm -hmm. and the beautiful person that she is to just push herself further outside of her comfort zone. And I, I mean that for all people because... If we do not experience different things, we will be sheltered and and biased by the the ignorant things, and I say that knowing what I'm saying, that we see on television. Mm -hmm. If you believe all the things that are put out there in the media, you will be afraid to leave your house. And I certainly would be afraid to leave my house, but Mm -hmm. you have to open up in order to change yourself if you are going to make change in the world. Well said. That was a long way of answering that question. No, I love it? it. I love it. I'm thinking, hmm, God even speaks through wonton soup. Yes. <laughs> and now you do yeah. like Asian food, right? <laughs> I have tried many different foods and, and things because of her challenge. <laughs> well, Dr. Clapton, um, as a historical documentarian, um, your body of work to date includes 14 short films and four books and also included as a children's coloring book and and also one play um, so if you don't mind tell us about your documentary film I know there are several but I want to start off with the one that you did uh, you produced uh, titled Farish Street They Called It Home which you wrote, produced and directed in um, December of 2013. Um, hmm. Tell me about that. Tell, tell not just me, but tell everyone about that. Well, this film is about what, well, uh, let me back up. My mother, Dr. Jesse Mosley, was a key person in having the Ferris Street Historic District declared a historic district, which was, or is the largest african-american historic district in the country and this is in i'm sorry i mean this is ferris street is an actual street in downtown jackson mississippi correct okay in downtown jackson and this district is in downtown jackson mississippi okay okay you can see the capital and everything from this district so it tells you the value of this district it was built originally by freed enslaved people Hmm. 
as a totally self-sustaining community with everything you could possibly imagine to sustain a community. And I think it was the Clarion Ledger in 1939 that looked at that community and said it was probably one of the, the, the wealthiest community in Jackson at that time. Because you had doctors, lawyers, grocery stores, homes, everything that needed to be sustained in one community. And that was the story I wanted to tell for a number of reasons. Number one, when when it is said that people of African descent are, have, are dependent on others for our survival, that is one of the many examples for which that is not true. And why it is not true today, there are a number of other reasons for that happening, not the least of which is economically based. Because when you think about it, it's it being the wealthiest area in the city at that time, and the dollar is circulating within that area, that means that the dollars are not going other places. Mm -hmm. So it led to the ultimate demise of it as the city of, of Jackson expanded and shopping centers moved further and further out, and transportation was becoming readily available. Then people of African descent began to go outside of their community to shop that's what they thought were better facilities. But then you have to look at the under economic underlying issues as to why the quality of merchandise was not getting into our historically black communities. And that's also something by design. Mm. Because if you keep the community down then and people see something that they think is better, then that money will flow out of the community. And that's why we have the one-way flow of dollars at this point in time today. Mm. But... They called it home, Ferry Street, they called it home, is to pay homage to those people who were extremely inventive and knew that the land and supporting of their own was extremely important for their success. I guess I, guess I need to venture off into um, no man's land and talk about uh, what we call racism today because that's tied to the demise in, in, in right. some ways. Right. And I look at it as the use of the term race is an example of the systematic processes which have been put in place to produce the systemic discord which plagues our world today. So, because we all go to church and we hear that, you know, we are all under God and all this stuff. And then we leave on Monday and we go back to the divisions that we have put in place. And that's because of not only, I guess, the miseducation of the black person, as mm -hmm. uh, Du Bois, W.B. Du Bois would say, mm -hmm. it is actually a result of the miseducation of people in general. And if we wish mm -hmm. to go down that road, then miseducation is a tool that was used to create the discord and create this, this misnomer of race, because we really are one race. The human race. The human race. I agree. And so if we are the human race, then there cannot be racism because we are all parts of the human race. As we are all part of the body of Christ, one body, we're all part of the one body, the human race. So then we have to look at the fact that we have things that have been miseducated from the beginning in order to create the discord. Part of my efforts, and I could say more about that, but part of my efforts to change that perception is why I produce these films. Yes. Why I produce all of the film which we do, which, by the way, I don't even name unless God tells me the name of it. It's usually at the end and then it's, it should be named <laughs> this. And I thought, oh, okay, that's what I'll name it. Mm -hmm. But if you'll notice the strand that goes through with Ferry Street, it's about economic self-sufficiency. With Did Johnny Come Marching Home? I think that's another one that is very popular. It's about the United States colored troops who fought in the Civil War um, for in Mississippi. There were 17,000 plus people of African descent from Mississippi who fought in the Civil War here in Mississippi. There were also 500 people, people non-people of color, or whites as we call them, who fought for the Union Army here in Mississippi. No, wait, wait. 17,000... Um, plus. 
plus just from the state of Mississippi, and they were all African-American from African descent? And they were from Mississippi. Wow. There were 17,500 plus people of African descent from Mississippi who fought in the Civil War in Mississippi. So when people talk about um, the North came down and freed us, they had overlooked the, the tremendous contributions that people of African descent made to our own freedom. Because if a person of African descent was caught fighting, you know the ramifications. We still see those spotted things happening all over the country with hangings and things. Mm-hmm. So it was they fought at great risk to themselves to even do that. Yes, 17,000 plus people of African descent fought. So did Johnny come marching home? This pays homage to those United States colored troops. And it's, the story is told by descendants of those United States colored troops who didn't even know the story, who finally, when they found the story, were so saddened that everyone did not know the story of the contributions. And so with several interviews, one was, the I think, the mayor, I don't know if he's still the mayor, but he's the mayor of Port Gibson, whose father, whose grand, great-grandfather fought in it. And he had his papers and shared those stories with us. So that in itself is an interesting thing. And, and these are short. If you notice, all my documentaries are maybe 30 minutes at the most. That's because I want them to be used in settings where parents and children can talk to each other about these. I want them to be used in schools as part of the lesson plans. And we do have lesson plans to go with them for teachers. So as an educatory process, and wasn't there one more that you wanted me to talk about? Well, before we go any farther, I know Catherine has seen the film, um, uh, Did Johnny Come Marching Home? I've only seen uh, the trailer. So, I, I, Catherine, I, what little bit I saw, I ha- I've never seen these images before. These are authentic images, Dr. Clopton, that you're using. I have never seen these mm. images of this massive um, presence of mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. black soldiers uh, mm-hmm. fighting during the Civil War. I, and I doubt that there are very many uh, people uh, in the state of Mississippi, uh, in, the, in the United States, and certainly the world, uh, anyone who studies the Civil War, these are, these are images that are not present in terms of my experience of studying the Civil War. Catherine, you've seen the film. They are just amazing. Uh, I think uh, Dr. Clopton was hosting a a film festival at the uh, Museum of Arts, and she had a display, a collection of of some of her films. And you could go to each station and and sit there and watch the the film. And it, it just reminded me of so much of our history that we lack in today's society. Our children are, are have no idea that some of these things that occurred, that some of their foreparents and, and, and people of African descent actually, you know, participated in and was a part of our entire history because, you know, in, in some of the public school districts, things like this are not taught. And so we are blindsided when, when, you know, people talk about, you know, things like this. And I remember reading uh, one of the quotes that I like so uh, much from Martin Luther King is, in many ways uh, that we have repented in this generation, not merely for the words and the violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around and say, wait on time. And, you know, waiting to see, you know, but Dr. Clopton actually put this in a form where we can understand, all people can understand the contributions that African Americans play in the roles in our society and in our country, how they've built this country. And it, and it's just and I like when she talked about despite, you know, racism and you know, systemic obstacles 
you know, placed in front of African Americans and how massive the wealth gap between African Americans and whites are. I read a Forbes report that talks about uh, non-retired African Americans' median income in 2016 was only 13460 compared to oh. white, our white counterparts' median wealth at 142180 And, uh, you know, looking at how the we continue to the systemic injustice continues, it affects all parts of our lives, including our economic vitality and how we are educated and how what level of education that we get all is tied more than just, uh, you know, the racism, but racism encompassed a lot of things. Well, and Dr. Coffin and I, I, we and Catherine, we're at a pivotal place right now. I think the event surrounding the death of George Floyd has ripped the scab off of racism in a way that I don't believe. Now, you, I, I could stand to be corrected at any moment, but I think that more than ever, we're at a pivotal time where, Dr. Kaufman, your material needs to be in every single state uh, school, private or public, at least we can start with this country, uh, and then we can expand all over the world, because information is valuable, and knowing the correct story about the history is crucial, and so we've got all of these hundreds of thousands of people marching uh, for Black Lives Matter, and I can promise you, um, from my perspective, all of those people with good hearts and well-intended, they probably do not know the history. Imagine how more empowered people would be if they really knew the history. Um, so I'm going to, uh, later on, I wanna, I'm going to plug this because this is so important. And the way you've done this, Dr. Clopton, and provided materials for follow-up, uh, watching these uh, short documentary films, um, is easily uh, adapted into a curriculum, I think. And, of course, you know that better than I do. Um, do you, do you want to comment on that? But the beauty is that you see it. <laughs> well, the beauty is that you see it, and I, pre- I appreciate that so much because that is, the, that is exactly the purpose for which they were created. And, and, and to watch people, when they, the few that have seen it, here in Mississippi, um, it's exciting to me when they have that aha moment, regardless of ethnicity. And mm-hmm. they they look in disbelief, but then they say, wow, because in many instances when we presented them, if, if the person about whom the film was made is, is alive, we have them there to talk about it so that they can see that it is not something that happened in the abstract. You're the living, breathing person that did this. And so you, now you understand, since you saw images that you've never seen before mm-hmm. when I talk about the miseducation of people and how systematically things have been put in place to divide us, systematic misinformation. And if I may take the liberty to talk about uh, airport chess and the linear bus boycott, in that film, I have photographs from the uh, Library of Congress of the African-American soldiers who fought in World War II. And that was about the greatest war. You never see black people. But I can assure you, hordes of black people, my brother was one of them, were over there fighting for the rights which they did not have at home. Mm. So when some young, well, other mentees of mine saw that, who happened to have been white, I asked them, what do you notice about the film? And the one young man said, all the black people. Mm-hmm. I said, and what does that tell you? He said, well, usually when we see people talking about the greatest generation in World War II, we only see white people. I said, that is correct. Mm-hmm. And you see the the black soldiers marching just going miles, the, the black caravans of trucks and, and the radio people and, and you know, fighting the side. And, I mean, everywhere. But all they talk about, of course, were the menial tasks that we do. And they never present us in a light where we have had impact. 
black spot in France because they would not allow us to fly over here. So they fought in, it with, it with the French so that they could fly and fight in the war. And yet people still want to say that we have made no contributions, but they're still a part of the underlying years and years of miseducation, which was, was perfected in Europe with the serfs. When they had that feudal system in place, they started seeing how to divide people and keep people wealthy. And so, therefore, keeping a subservient class who would support them. And that was the beginning of it. So, these are the things that we need to really start trying to share with people. And if people would like to go to a website or, you know, email me, I would love to have our work. We're going to give them that information, information definitely. One interesting thing that I looked at on here about airport chess was that in 1947, he refused to give up his seat on a bus designated for transporting colored students to class. And as a result, he was taken off the bus and, ar <laughs> and arrested, which led to the Lanier bus boycott of 1947. But it's interesting that, you know, a lot of times in the history that we see, we see, uh, you know, when the movement started, actually some things were occurring prior to an actual uh, bigger movement that started. But these people play a pivotal role because, you know, foundations were set, just like I think that the, the, the the boycott or, or the movement that we're having with George Floyd movements similar to that have occurred prior to but every time we, it's, we've had this, in my opinion that we've had some type of movement it trickled us and moved us um, greater to bigger and more things that accomplishes the goal but baby steps have been taken and so I think you know looking at this you know airport chess played a pivotal role because you know he might have been technically the first person that actually refused to give up his seat. Prior to Rosa Parks. R right. Yeah. So tell us well, about this film, Dr. Compton. I'm sorry, say it again? Uh, tell us a little more about the film. Well, Elport Chess was a returning World War II veteran. And his philosophy was, why should he go and fight somewhere and come back and not enjoy the same freedoms that he had he enjoyed when he was not here and was fighting for other people. So what I think is interesting is that black children going to school to Lanier High School, which was the only, as we would say, regional school, they had to ride the city bus. That's the first thing you have to understand. It was not like the little yellow buses that we see that are provided today. It was the city bus. And they had to pay to ride that bus. So the bus was crammed full of students going to high school. And there were two seats on the bus still reserved for white passengers. Elport hmm. Chess was sitting in one of those seats. The bus, the number nine bus, was designated for people of African descent only to go to school. But the, the bus driver decided to stop and let a white female get on the bus. And he asked El Porches to get up and give her his seat. And as one of the people we interviewed said, the bus was packed like sardines. And so why would he get up and give her his seat? Hmm. The bus driver closed the, the door to the bus, drove immediately downtown to what's now uh, the King Edward Hotel. Mm -hmm. And there was a policeman there called Depot Slim. I cannot remember his name right now, but mm -hmm. I have his name in the film. Who was known for his aggressive behaviors to black people. In other words, he would beat us up the head, side of the head, without any question. Mm -hmm. I remember my, my brother coming home from Indiana University, and Depot Slim met him at the train station and said, you're home now, nigga. You know, he made it clear. Uh -huh. that he understood that he was back in his place. Uh -huh. At any rate, Depot Slim pulled El Porches off the bus uh -huh. and took him downtown and arrested him. The rest of the children went to school 
and started talking about what had happened. And that is the start of the Lanier bus boycott because they stopped riding the buses to school. They, you know, they got, and this was eight years before Rosa Parks had her her sit-in. But they went ahead and walked a bus themselves, and we're talking about miles that some of them had to walk to make sure that they would get to school, and that is what that story is about. But the civil rights movement, the original civil rights movement began when the World War II veterans returned the black veterans returned and saw what was happening and said they're not going to take it anymore. Dr. Clopton, um, you are the recipient of many, many accolades and awards, um, which in some of them include the 2011 Mississippi Humanities Educators Award, the 2012 Mississippi Top Business Women Award, and one of Mississippi's top 10 business women of the year in 2013, along with several other awards, um, being your president of the board of Susan G. Coleman, um, and vast other, you know, awards and accolades. The news continues to be filled with the public murder of George Floyd, and now over the past weekend, another murder of a young black man, Rashad Brooks. Your work has been demonstrating for years Black Lives Matter, and you've expressed this through your films and books and and throughout the state and, and everywhere someone can see your films. Are you thinking that we finally are turning a corner in the fight to address systemic racism? I think we have turned the corner in terms of seeing it, blatantly mm. seeing it, mm. until we vote mm. and get the people in office who can do something, as they say they will, to create unity, mm. until, and they talk about education not being the key, but since we have been miseducated, we keep perpetuating the myths and building a society on on myths until we have an educational system that teaches all people the history and the history of all people. We will never really address the deep ingrained issues that have for generations generated what we have issue you know mis- misinformation number one of many 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 the boat which columbus sailed mm-hmm. was owned by people of african descent hmm. the second boat the owner was also he had all the boats and his brother was on the second boat the owner was on the boat with christopher columbus where did i find this out going into the Florida archives as I'm writing another book. So not only did Christopher Columbus stumble up here, he stumbled up here on boats that were owned by people of African descent with people of African descent free with him. They were sailors. So we're talking about changing the narrative for us all. Mm -hmm. And I know that's difficult because people don't want to hear those stories because if you've been told for years that you are the superior race because of your hard work and you're smarter and brighter than everybody else but then you turn around and find out that that was not true across the board that's a difficult thing to accept and that is until that happens we will not see a change you know it reminds me, we mentioned last um, week during our uh, podcast recording, actually with Catherine, who sh- was telling her story, um, we mentioned the uh, phrase from the film South Pacific, where it says, you, uh, in regards to racism, you have to be taught, you have to be carefully, mm-hmm. carefully mm-hmm. taught to hate. Correct. And with what you're saying... Um, and, and what you have dedicated your life and as well as your mother had um, is we we are we we are at least I'm aware of now um, products of a an educational system that has whose history is inaccurate uh, or at least if 
nothing else. It's incomplete. And so um, it's almost like I feel like all of the teachings uh, throughout my entire uh, educational journey, I feel like I've been robbed, number one, um, of the complete history uh, of our country and uh, and and all of the consequences of war and uh, who actually helped uh, bring us our freedom and who actually gave their lives so that we would be the country that we at least were and hopefully will be again. But um, it's almost like propaganda. I feel kind of um, like... I feel like I'm contaminated or somebody has spit on me because I feel like I've been robbed of the truth. And if I'm feeling that way, um, imagine, just I'm just, what's your opinion? And I know you do this all the time, but imagine what it would be like even today if, if, if those who were in charge of, of scripting our textbooks were honest and, and didn't, um, didn't uh, uh, in, use the promotion of the white male culture um, to uh, explain who we are as a country. I'm offended. What I, what I think about is think how we think we're advanced now. Think how much further our country would be if we had allowed all of the minds, the brilliant minds, to contribute to its growth. And I think about my father who influenced hundreds of hundreds of, of students at Jackson State University. He was the founder of the graduate school at Jackson State University. Oh, wow. And people adored him because I am actually more my father's daughter, although of course I was influenced by my mother, but my father taught me the passion of how to research and how to help other people. I was my daddy used to say, baby in his classroom, I'm teaching them to reach for the mountaintops because maybe they'll reach the treetops. So he spent his life trying to inspire people to think further beyond what people would say as their circumstance. And yes, that's why you keep hearing me say we have been, we have been, and I don't mean the black we or the white we, I'm talking about the collective we, mm-hmm. have been miseducated. If we had allowed people that they always put in front, like George Washington Carver, there were lots of George Washington Carvers. Lots of people who invented things that were black, whose patents now say that it was invented by a white person. If we had allowed our society to flourish as the people that we want to be, this nation would be beyond great. It would be the wonderful paradise of opportunity that we say we want to create. As a Phi Delta Kappa, Pi Lambda Theta Honor Society graduate of St. Louis University and a native Mississippian who, as you say, is dedicated to closing the gap between the state's engaging history and younger generation as a way to spark new conversations and pathways of understanding. How has that worked for you? Well, I think it is, I think it's working because at least some people are listening. Mm. And it's not just with young people. I was very honored to have been the president of the Mississippi Humanities Council. And that is a way to reach many, many people across the state. And it has opened doors of conversation that I don't think are happening anywhere else in the United States Mm -hmm. until George Floyd. But we had conversations on the flag we had conversations on race relationships. So it's a slow process, but a process that cannot be stopped because now with the season having been sown, it's working even more. Mm-hmm. I, I just love sitting in audiences at the two museums and looking at all the people there who are trying to grind out these issues that continue to plague us. 
it's working. It's working. Well, I think you should be presenting in museums all over the country personally. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, so, Dr. Kropman, thank you so much for your honesty and your courage, uh, your commitment to paving the way for improved lives of young black men, women, children, not only in Mississippi, but uh, throughout the world. I do want our listening audience, uh, and I'll repeat it a, a few times because I think it's important that they know how to get in touch with you um, and to be able to purchase or access uh, your uh, short documentary films and books and uh, all of your work and possibly could invite you to come and be a speaker because you're so skilled and, uh, and informed about a topic that uh, I don't think is um, shared by too many other people. So, um, Dr. Cropton's website is www.blackhistoryplus.com. And, um, and let me repeat it again and I'll spell it B L A C K H I S T O R Y P L U S. BlackHistoryPlus.com. That's correct, Dr. Goffman? Yes, it is. Okay, great. Uh, well, thank you for being here. Um, Catherine, thank you. As always, your thoughts help us to consider oh, all the challenges that we face um, to make things different. And Dr. Goffman and I hope we can have you back. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. I have truly enjoyed it and I cannot wait to see you <laughs> <laughs> me too either <laughs> uh, I want to uh, maybe say this last quote and I always think about all of the things and the challenges and where we are today but Franklin D. Roosevelt said in these days of difficulty we Americans everywhere must and shall choose the path of social justice the path of faith the path of hope and the path of love towards our fellow man thank you Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation, producers of Faith and Reason Educational Programming. Additional funding provided by the Wendland Cook Foundation. Please visit our website at www.faithandreason.org. God chose Israel, remembering mercy. According to the promise to those he made before, to Sarah, to Abraham, to Hagar, to their children's children.